something interesting is happening in Europe today um, and has been going on obviously since the Ukraine war has broke out, but in more elaborate terms, I would say uh, this collapse that we're witnessing has been happening since probably after World War II, the reorganization of Europe and all of the different things that ended up unfolding after that complete uh, catastrophe that was you know, Hitler's Third Reich. And to get into details here, I want to first say that this is definitely going to be a geopolitical podcast dedicated to more of an overarching theme to cover crises happening around the world um, and how they're going to be able to affect us in our daily lives. Uh, and of course, sympathetically speaking, seeing how a place like Europe, almost, I would even say many of our ancestral lands, just because Europeans, of course, colonized America, North America, and even South America, for the most part, these are people relatable to us, not just ancestrally, but these people in Europe, they are related to us in terms of modernization and how they have been living in the first world for quite some time. And to witness the collapse of a first world conglomerate of nations is, uh, is very, it's very scary, to be honest with you. It's, it's frightening because and we're going to get into it all, but I mean, imagine waiting in line for coal to heat your house for coal. This isn't 1903, right? This is 2022. How did we get to this point that we are at right now? Well, let's definitely get into it. First, I want to start with uh, the fact that there's a changing world order. And I've written an article, which I'll be referencing to here. Um, and so you can catch the article at my Substack in the links in my bios. And of course, I will link to it inside the podcast. So you can check it out in the description below so you can read along with me here, um, as well as learn from that more literary standpoint. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was how, you know, there's been a real serious decline, I would say, in the last decade in Europe uh, because there have been certain changes in policy that have interestingly devastated the entire European continent. Um, you know, people in power in Europe, especially derive a lot of their power from the financial central banks. Um, one of the biggest banks in the world is called the World Bank, and it is based there in Switzerland. Um, if you didn't know this, but Switzerland was completely neutral during World War II uh, because even before World War II, they did play that role of the financial capital of the world. Um, there were a lot of different treaties that go into it because knowing if Switzerland were to be overrun by one nation or another nation, it would just, uh, it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense because it would collapse the world order itself because of how the entire, I guess you could even say the Western world is developed. Uh, because even though Europe was at war during World War II, there was still a, um, kind of an overarching theme with the competing powers in Asia, for example, like Japan and the Japanese empire during World War II. Germany had a relationship with Japan, but seeing that they were in the Pacific and that they could grow to become an empire even stronger and more ruthless perhaps than the Nazis, they, the Nazis made sure not to destroy certain particular infrastructure that existed at the time to prop up Europe into this first world, um, into the, uh, I guess you could even say, the, the power leading figure, especially in regards to finances and money and the world of money. And so um, I wrote here that the globalist elites that wield this artificial ring of power 
have only had that power through the current financial matrix that they have built. And that they believed that by forming the largest financial institutions on earth in a cartel-like manner, they would control the world's resources. So notice how it's through finance and loans that these cartels have control of the world's resources. There really isn't a lot of physical, more practical matter that is giving these very powerful elites these resources. Whether it's a coal mine or a diamond mine or a lithium mine in Argentina or an oil drill of some kind. These resources, which are, I, I named a couple that were more or less energetically, they're, they're forms of energy. It's not just that they don't really own these particular pieces that matter so much in the world economy. The only thing attached to the ownership that these elites have is the deeds over the loans that they provided. The loans that have been printed and in today's day and age typed into a digital computer with no backing whatsoever because the financial currency of the world, especially being the US dollar and other fiats are not backed by gold or any other kind of resource. So when they print this money or when they digitize it into existence to loan to a, a third world country or to a corporation in, the, in, the, in America, for example, they don't actually own anything. They just made it up. So how long does that magician use the same trick? How long does it last to just have this imaginary fiat currency buying up the world? How long does that last? Because, which I'm going to get into here in the article as well, Russia and China have been propped up in positions of power that are real power bases. Russia in terms of energy and China in terms of manufacturing. And by the way, to double down, people think of manufacturing as just simply this key phrase that's thrown around in politics or something. No. Manufacturing is the creation process of the products and services that you and I expect and use on a day-to-day -day basis. The camera that I'm looking at right now that I'm recording this video on, the phone that you're holding in your hand, more than likely, was built in China. Do you realize how much power that is? That's real economic power, not built on this fiat currency system that, current, that currently exists. Now, going on here, through the financing of entire government bodies and major corporations that have built our modern world, they, being these elites, believed they had full reign of power over those resources. But we, what we are seeing is the mismanagement of that power has created a vulnerability in their own system. And that vulnerability is being exposed by the citizens of these various nations and Russia and China. Now, when I say that there's a mismanagement of these resources, the elites in control are printing money to buy up the world's resources, right? They don't have relationships with the people down in the coal mine, right? Or digging up these diamonds or drilling an oil well, as I mentioned earlier. 
there's no relationship there. These bankers, they don't know how that stuff actually works. They rely on corporations to function properly, to drill, to dig, and to do whatever it is that they're doing to build real wealth, which is these resources I just mentioned, not fiat. If you had $10 million in the bank, you're not as wealthy, practically speaking, as somebody who has a million dollar house. You've got 10 million in the bank, nothing, you don't own anything else, you just have the 10 million. And then someone else has a million dollar house. The person with the house is wealthier than you who has 10 million. Do you see? We are confused to think that the fiat currency is real wealth. It is not real wealth. And some of the big business entrepreneurs today don't even talk in terms of how much money they have. They talk in terms of how much they have cash flow. Cash flow is, I would say, a source of wealth. And the only way that you get cash flow is by buying real resources, real assets like real estate and getting a cash flow from a particular asset. This is income producing assets as they call it in business. And in our world, a lot of those assets that even you and I would buy, we would use the bank's money to buy it. The bank just prints the money. And as we learned in 2008, they have no financial liability because when they make bad loans, the bank suffers. That's how it's supposed to work. But in 2008, when they made bad loans to people who bought up houses they could not afford, the banks were bailed out by the government. The Federal Reserve Bank, the central bank here in America, printed money to save these smaller, when I say smaller, I mean like Wells Fargo or, or you know, large financial institutions. They bailed them out. They bailed out the smaller financial institutions. Imagine how big the Federal Reserve Bank is in comparison. So when they bail them out, that means that banks don't have any liability. Because if you loan a friend a thousand bucks, right? And you say, look, here's this thousand dollars that I will loan you, you have to pay me back, you know, next Friday, $1,100, right? That's like, um, that would be a 10% return on your money. It's an interest. And so then by Friday, let's say comes around the payday or whatever, your friend doesn't pay you the thousand bucks, right? Let's say they can only afford 500 or 200 or something like that. That's your loss because Although they still owe you technically, really, how are they, how are you supposed to be backed up? No, that was your choice as the financial institution to your friend that when you loan that money, you also were taking a risk because you were trying to get the hundred dollars back, right? The 1,100 back, right? You make a profit. All you did was loan the money, right? Seems pretty seamless in the real financial world. Nowadays, what we understand is that these larger institutions, these large banks, if they're big enough, they will be bailed out if given the opportunity by our government to prop up or continue propping up a fiat system that we exist in today. So I wanted to kind of first acknowledge that that's the source of a lot of our major issues. So, when we think about it, car carrying on, there is a, a, a sensation that people are going to start to revolt against that system. They're, they're going to choose to no longer believe in that system, which is, which is a fair assessment, right? I mean, why, why wouldn't we? Why, why would we just continue to prop this up with the with this other system why would we continue propping up this system essentially the matrix being that it has enslaved us it has enslaved us to to believe that it's truly in power but in reality 
we realize now, through this vulnerability, through this mismanagement, that they are not truly in power. These financial wizards, even, they don't actually have any real power. The real power is inside of the individual, is inside of the average everyday person who knows how this system works. Because in a way, without them, these financial powers couldn't exist to the level that they are right now. So carrying on here is, is really, uh, you can see that Russia and China, just to give you a little historical lesson here, they've been used as pawns in this world scale of chess over the last century, on and off. So Russia being controlled by communism, funded by the Rothschilds and Rockefellers for 90 years, okay? And then you have China being developed into a communist super state in 1949 with a slave working class to build the products that are consumed around the world, okay? Uh, in the minds of the elites in these countries, Russia and China in specific, but you can throw in India and Brazil and others, it is now a, a time of reckoning for this old Anglo-Saxon world order. This is the year of the tiger in China, just to give you an example, and an opportune time for Russia to enact its strength on the world stage. And now that we have established the pretext to learn of Europe's downfall, we can get into the details of it all. So I wanted to talk about banking and stuff because we have to recognize that this is where things start. If you want to um, listen to a great book or, or read one, however you prefer, uh, there's a book called uh, An Economic Hitman. And there's something, I think there's something more in that title, but you can put in Economic Hitman and this, this book should pop up. It's by a guy who, I, you could call him an economist, I guess. He's almost like an evaluator. He would go into third world countries and he was, he was tasked, he was tasked to do this, by the way. This guy would go into third world countries he would evaluate their financial situation. He would also evaluate their, their resources, how much uh, money could be made from various different you know, energy deposits or um, uh, infrastructure projects, things like that, uh, tourism, right? And so based on this financial analysis, he would make up kind of this fairy tale story and then report it back to the International Monetary Fund, which is a large central bank. Uh, he also worked with the World Bank, which is another large central bank. And these central banks would loan money to these third world governments, not even corporations. They, they would loan money to the governments of these particular nations to build them a railroad or build them a port for shipping or to uh, construct some kind of coal mine right? And just like the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, they would use, you know, American-based companies or European-based companies to come in there and, and take up all the money so everyone gets a piece of the cut. Everyone gets a piece of the pie. And that was a system that would happen constantly, especially in the third world. This is why you have a, a little nation in Central America called El Salvador rebelling against these kinds of financial games. Because uh, even in Panama, I think um, the president of Panama in the, uh, in the 80s was thrown out of a helicopter because he wasn't going along with the loans and this whole financial fiat system that was being built. So when you think about it, it's kind of like, like loan sharking when you give a loan to someone you know who can't pay it back 
and then you're gonna you know put them into a place where you have all this interest on there and you know that they're not gonna be able to get it back to you and you end up making boatloads of money because um, maybe you sue them or they end up owing you all this money later, that kind of thing. And then what happens is you get possession of these assets. So if you're a big bank and you loan somebody a car, you ever heard of repo? I think we've all heard of repo. Repossession, right? Well, that's when you don't pay your car payment for three months, four months, whatever it is on based on the financial institution. And then somebody comes up to your door, knows where you live, all the things, and they go and they will take that new car away because you're not paying your bill. And the bank then owns that asset. I would call a car a liability, but let's say they own that asset. You bought it and you still owe them that money, but then in order of, as collateral is what they call it in the financial world, They'll come in and get that collateral. They'll pick up that car and they might even ask to, to get some other things from you as collateral, your computer, a TV. I mean, they, they'll get whatever from you. They'll, they'll run you dry. And there's a lot of cases in the financial world where people would do this thing just as a normal everyday situation. So we have to recognize that that is what's been happening to the third world for uh, quite some time now. So in case you didn't know, Europe is on the verge of complete collapse and they will more than likely have people uh, freeze to death during this upcoming winter. Uh, how did we get to this point? Well, I will tell you, uh, it starts with the idea that you can power your entire energy grid purely on solar and wind. Um, we have known now, uh, based off of Germany's example, that that is clearly not possible. And that when you try and power your grid based off of these power sources to a large degree, because it's only about 30% of their resource of power. But even then, we know that when you do power these uh, power grids through these renewable ways, what tends to happen is it, it is very inconsistent and you're not going to get what you think you would otherwise get. Then you top that with the fact that Germany buys a large percentage of their energy supply from natural gas and oil from Russia. So when you are buying energy, which I, you know, I'm not, I may not be an expert, but between you and I is a vital component to civilization, a vital component. I mean, try to live without electricity for a week. You, what would you do without electricity? Now, I, I go camping. So I have some camping gear. I, I could make things work. I could figure something out. But we have to ask ourselves, is, is the modern era person, human being, capable of living without electricity? Double that down with, why is this happening in the first place? Should somebody in the modern world live without electricity? Now, we can talk about going to be more ancestrally. We could talk about going backwards in time and seeing how our ancestors lived and how some of those uh, ways of life are better or worse for humanity, generally speaking. I mean, look at some parts of the third world where they don't have electricity. We can argue that all day, but to take somebody who essentially has been coddled by the first world and the modernization of electricity and the power grid itself and throw them into a third world scenario without any preparation whatsoever and no infrastructure in place to hold the capacity of life to any degree that they had in the past is devastating. And that is what's happening in Europe. So I firstly want to talk to you about how there is a false utopia that solar and wind can build a type one civilization. We know that multiple energy sources are going to be needed to build a type one civilization. Type one being like interplanetary species, you know, able to travel to Mars, live on Mars, colonize Mars do all these wonderful things that humanity is looking forward to, or maybe just Elon Musk, but we're going to need some variety of power sources. We, we, we can use some sun, we can use some wind where it works, uh, and we can use hydropower where it works. Um, we can use oil 
we can use natural gas. And I would even say we could definitely use nuclear. There are various different energy sources. And there are more sources that are on the way that are being created in labs everywhere. There are interesting fusion energy sources that I've been researching in the scientific field that have been coming out and a lot of them been suppressed actually. Uh, and so we don't know a lot about them because the patents are bought up or whatever have you. I mean, people have heard of theories around uh, an entirely, uh, a car engine being powered completely by water and then how Chevron or Exxon would buy up those patents and essentially, you know, put them under the rug, right? And so we've heard of these ideas. So to sit here and say that solar and wind is the is the absolute future, well, we, we'll know by the end of this podcast, you'll know uh, that that's not really the truth of the matter. And so uh, this is kind of coming from the article that I read already, uh, that I wrote already. Sorry about that. And then it, again, like you, when like I said earlier, you can find this in the uh, podcast description. But <clears throat> look. It was never supposed to be possible to have solar and wind completely powering our world, our civilization, to the extent that it does, okay? Uh, because the elites in control of our resources have decided to destroy any capacity of life to live a decent life. And even further than that, they would, a lot of them want to depopulate. How do you depopulate a society that's built on an infrastructure like coal and, and natural gas and oil? You strip them of these things, you convince them that it's good for them, and then you watch as they whittle and die. That's what's happening in Europe right now. Europe has now collapsed into a second world, almost even a third world status. Now again, you can say all the things you want about well, those are those colonizing bastards and they deserve to fucking die and, and freeze to death or whatever. Maybe that's your prerogative. Me, on the other hand, I'm not going to be that way. I'm going to sit here and tell you that that is not a good idea. And that is not good for civilization. And I will tell you that it is definitely not good for America to have Europe freeze to fucking death. Because they have no access to energy. Because their policymakers made it their decision to take them off of their own their own domestically built oil and energy supplies and put them on solar and wind only and then to solely essentially make Russia a monopoly on energy for all of these European nations because Russia has no problem drilling oil. Russia has no problem digging for coal and sending that power through power lines all the way into all over Europe, essentially. So the green agenda is really just all built on a lie. Similar to being in an abusive relationship where you're cut off from any other person or activity that could be good for you in the name of keeping you safe and prosperous, moving into a new world, right? It's what an abusive person would do to you, right? An abusive person would date you and cut you off from all of your friends and all your family and all the people that really care about you. They would create them as an enemy they would demonize any other kind of activity that you may want to do because they'll say to you, well, you don't want to do that because it's so-and-so and so-and-so. And they make excuses around maybe you going and working out or losing weight or whatever. Why? Because that abusive person is insecure and they don't want to let you go. They don't want to see you get better in life because they, they, they don't see themselves as that growing person. They know the secret is that if you were to improve your life somehow, that you would forget about them, that you wouldn't need them anymore. Very similarly, I would say some of our policymakers have put us in this position where we are now beholden to this new grand idea. The idea that is actually not going to develop into the future at all, just like the abusive relationship. It's not really going to end up in marriage and, and maybe it is marriage, but it's not going to end up being prosperous in the end somehow, even though you're convinced of that. Right now, policymakers all over the world, and especially here in Europe, have convinced their population, who are now waking up, that these alternative sources of power, these renewable sources, are somehow going to give them the same quality of life that 
oil and natural gas and coal have provided them, and even nuclear. But we know now that that is not the case, that that is not ever going to happen, and then that was never the plan in the first place. These are the same people who talk about depopulating the world. These are the same people who want control over a vaccine mandate and all the things. So we have to grab this. If any, you're going to take this, you're going to take anything away from this podcast in particular. It is this episode. It is this. The same people who are injecting you with a poisonous vaccine only to tell you later that it was a complete and utter fraud are trying to tell you and I that the energy resource that we are currently using is not good for the earth and is not good for us, even though evidence supports a different argument. And they are trying to convince us that this new form of energy or this renewable form of energy is going to provide the prosperity and the quality of life that we currently have right now. But in reality, it is going to take us backwards. Because if you look at Europe and you look at Germany in specific, you can see that they are becoming deindustrialized, that they are suffering from living in a nation that has no access to their own energy. They have been cut off from their own domestic supply in the name of a green world, in the name of a renewable system. It's all been a fraud since the beginning. That residential German electricity prices are nearly three times higher than electricity prices in the US. Mind you, let me clarify, this is starting in about 2000, so over the last 20 years, where pretty much all of Europe, but even Germany in particular, was doing just fine energetically. They their price of living and things like that were, you know, pretty cheap. You know, they had nuclear power and they had coal and almost everything else that a modern industrialized nation has. And so ever since shutting down these power plants, these coal plants, and then switching to renewables, this is the current situation. Okay, just so that's giving you the preference there. As many as eight hundred thousand Germans have had their power cut off because of an inability to pay for rising energy costs. This is where we are, we're peaking out here. This is in the last six months. Germany's fed-in tariff scheme uh, provides lavish subsidies to renewable energy producers. Uh, Again, there's a whole thing about the only reason why renewable energy is even alive today is because of the subsidies provided for them by the government. Onshore wind has required feed-in tariffs that are in excess of 300% higher than market prices. Germany's renewable energy levy, which subsidizes renewable energy production, cost German households $7.2 billion in 2013. So that's a little bit of an older number. So again, the subsidization of an entire industry where that wasn't happening before, oil and coal and natural gas, when you got it from the earth in those domestic areas, well, They were providing jobs. They were providing money and wealth to the community. Whereas right now, a lot of these renewable energy sources are costing the taxpayer money because the taxpayer is paying these companies through the government to even exist and provide them with this renewable energy source. So this is kind of the situation there. And Germany is is really the perfect prototype for a future in solar and wind. And, and I have an article that I listed here that you really should take a look at. And so in, in my article, I have another article I'm referencing to. Uh, and it goes more in depth into this entire German energy history, really. Uh, they are about 10 years ahead of America in what they have accomplished. Okay, I'm putting quotes, air quotes up. They're in terms of, more air quotes, sustainable energy progress. Just over 30% of its energy grid is powered completely by solar and wind technology. However, there are power outages caused by an inconsistent supply of energy provided by these alternatives to natural gas and oil. That is just par for the course in Germany because of their policy to shut down all coal plants, nuclear plants, and oil drilling. Not all the nuclear plants are shut down, by the way. There's a couple that are still around. Instead, Germany, along with many other European nations, rely completely on Russian oil and natural gas to power their manufacturing and heat their homes along with dozens of other uses that come from those energy sources. 
Now, given the launch of the Ukraine war, we can see how that's a major problem for Western Europe. Again, maybe no one saw it coming, but when you buy energy from a potential adversary, they have control over you. As they say in our culture, they have you by the balls, which means you can't do anything about it. That is where Russia is positioned geopolitically. And in this article, I have pictures of uh, in Czechoslovakia, for example, where they are having mass protests against um, the war in Ukraine, not because Putin's invaded Ukraine. No, 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 no. For the Czechoslovakian government not to support the Western-backed side of the Ukraine war. These people are there because they're like, look, we don't care about this war in Ukraine. We, we, we care about the people and, and it's a devastating situation. But these people protesting are essentially saying, look, we, we can't afford to not just only not only not send these people weapons and stuff and all the things we can't afford the energy that Russia is now cutting off. And when there's a low supply price goes up. This is economics 101. And so I put that there's a uh, another article here I, I screenshotted that it says Europe has little option but to rescue consumers from the energy crisis. And it says with no end to Ukraine war in sight and transition away from Russian gas ongoing, scale of support will be massive. So now there's supporters in these countries that are su really supporting Russia. Basically saying, look, just stop with this whole war. Because watch this. This is the most important part of the Ukraine war. The Ukraine war would already be over. If you actually studied what Russia is asking for, for their terms, their peace terms, the, the Western-backed governments and Ukraine could easily decide that that's the case. That the Donbass region and all these other eastern parts of Ukraine just either should just be belong to Russia, be states of Russia, because that's what those states in Ukraine have voted on. They have had a referendum. No one talks about this. But Don, the Donbass region, which is a whole area of Ukraine, but the eastern part of Ukraine that is bordering with Russia has already voted. The people, the, the city governments, the state governments there, they've already voted to be annexed by Russia. Nobody talks about that. They've already voted to be a part of Russia. And it is Ukraine's attack on those regions that over the last eight years, since 2014, has become an attack on Russia itself. The war that has been happening has been proxy. It's still proxy, but it's obviously a major power involved now. I mean, the Russian people are actually inside Ukraine, right? So what we're witnessing is a lack of leadership on behalf of the Western governments in Ukraine to be like, hey, we understand that this is the dispute that's been happening. Russia, you've clearly put your soldiers in here. You have violated this or this. But at the same time, you had your reasons. You know, war's a racket. But they have their reasons. And to understand Russia's purpose is to understand that they have terms. They don't want to be at war. It is costly for them. Even though Putin says they've lost nothing. And it's like most recent thing. It's really funny. But the point is, is it costs them. And so Russia has clearly stated what they want. And it is to honor what the people in eastern Ukraine have already voted on. Just to honor that. Just to say, look, this is they are now part of Russia because they have been discriminated against. And all these issues have happened in Ukraine to, to lead to this adoption by Russia. To adopt or annex these, these regions of Ukraine. So, again, we could end the war right now. I mean, if, the, if America came in there and just negotiated some kind of peace deal and, and, and agreed to those terms with Russia, the war would be over. But war is a racket. And there's going to be a continuous state of warfare because there is so much money being made right now. When America sends billions of dollars to Ukraine, this is a huge racket. This is just all corruption. 
The money isn't even going to the people to feed anybody. No, it's all going towards weapons and new new concepts, new war concepts. It's all going to be you know funneled through Lockheed Martin and Boeing and and um, Raytheon and all these other weapons manufacturers. I mean, this is just emboldening and broadening the power of the military industrial complex. That's all that's happening there in Ukraine right now. And Russia just sees it again as a threat. And also Russia is, is kind of getting a bigger goal in their mind because of this continuous propagation of the war itself. So this is the effects of the war in Ukraine. Okay, on Europe's energy supply in particular. And going over this is America and Europe placed sanctions on Russia to stop importing and exporting goods to and from Russia. So to stop buying from Russia, some products aren't going into Russia because of this war, right? This action has been responded to by Russia with their decision to stop sending desperately needed oil and gas to Europe, or at least limiting the amount that they send and also, they are sending it, but at a huge price. So now Europe, which is dependent, like a drug, they're dependent on this oil from Russia because the green energy thing doesn't really work. It's just a, fa a, a, faca a facade, a facade. And Russia has played their cards. And here we are six months later in September... And the Russian economy has grown significantly. They are clearly winning in the ground war in Ukraine. This week in particular, there's been a counteroffensive by the Ukrainians to try to push Russia out of a certain area. And I think they've become successful. But ultimately, Russia's winning the ground war. I mean, ultimately. And Russia's alliances with China, Iran, India, Brazil, Turkey, South Africa, and Hungary are stronger than ever before. And not only that, but the Russian currency, known as the, the ruble, is the strongest it's ever been compared to the US dollar. So the ruble is now powerful. All of a sudden, when the Western media will have you believe that Russia's in decline, it's, it's this, the propagation of lies that makes us in the West, in Europe and in America, believe that somehow we're winning in this war in Ukraine or that Ukraine is winning. I would even say that there's been kind of a media blackout over the last few months from mainstream news about the Ukraine war because the truth is, is that it's not going very well. Only recently you're seeing some kind of development because there's some kind of effort to counter strike. So look, I mean, the old world order of European and American self-described globalist elites have lost their hegemony on the world stage. This control they had over Ukraine, the IMF, as I mentioned earlier, economic hitman, just look into it. The International Monetary Fund was involved in loaning money to Ukraine and trying to rob the Ukrainians of their own resources. I mean, this is really what's going on. So in a way... And I'm not the only one saying this. People in Ukraine really believe this. Russia and Putin are seen as liberators from the poachers that are the Western-backed central banks like the International Monetary Fund. That's what's really happening there. So wh whose side are we really on here? Who is in the righteous side of history? It's going to be very difficult to, to, to hash it all out. But in due time, I think we'll see that Russia had their rights. And uh, I would say that the Ukrainian people have their say. And I would say that the eastern part of Ukraine, the people living there, the majority of them are supportive of Russia and the invasion itself. I mean, and that's a hard truth to swallow. But the energy crisis in Europe is only the beginning of the end of this world order. If you know anything about warfare... You'll know that energy supplies are the most critical aspect to waging war. Take this as a history buff. The oil embargo on Japan is what led to Pearl Harbor. The attack on Pearl Harbor, that is. Energy is everything. 
And when your nation destroys its energy infrastructure to replace it with green technology and then imports that same energy from their potential adversary, you might be in a vulnerable position, geopolitically speaking. Those of us who are aware of this saw this coming. We warned against it. And to think that Russia's demands were very basic and simple to acquiesce to by Ukraine during the beginning stage. And I do, I do reference beginning because in the beginning it was pretty simple. As they invaded, they had some initial success being Russia. They, go, they went to Turkey. They sent a, uh, a team to negotiate in Turkey to provide diplomacy. And Ukraine had their team there. And their terms were very simple, hard, but, but simple to agree to for these Western elites. And they didn't do it, as, I'm, as I referenced earlier. And it's totally unnecessary conflict at this point. Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable. It shows just how weak and frail the globalist elites are in their ability to get what they want out of world conflicts again. As I've said, the world order is transforming before our very eyes. The fact that Ukraine is, is just in this position and that, of course, Europe won't actually send any troops there, even though we kind of are low-key, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to think that this massive military-industrial complex is not winning the war. And the morale is not very high. Now, if... I believe that if the Ukrainians really meant it, they could defeat the Russians to the capacity that, of course, Russia wouldn't be willing to, you know, invest in. Because there are parts of the Russian military that are not in Ukraine, of course. They're in reserves. And so uh, I think even recently, Putin has announced that there's going to be kind of a military draft in those eastern parts of Ukraine. And there's going to be a demand from these people in Ukraine who, who voted that they want to be a part of Russia. It's going to be this demand that says, hey, look, I mean, if you want to be a part of Russia, then help us in this cause. Gain your freedom. And it's not to say that that's not happening, but um, a lot of these eastern Ukrainians are starting to sign up and enlist and start to fight in their own war. So, look, this is Russia's perspective. The president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, has given a speech recently where he indi indicates that Russia has lost nothing in Ukraine. And there's a whole article I referenced to here. Although I'm sure the families of the dead and wounded Russians have a counter to that. But politically and economically speaking, Putin is right. That's the sad part. The World Economic Forum's agenda in this crisis, let's look at that. We've been hearing a lot about the Great Reset. been hearing a lot in these circles around what, what is this purpose of, of, of these various different subgroups and groups? Uh, the World Economic Forum being one of them, they're very closely tied to the Trilateral Commission. They're very closely tied to the Council on Foreign Relations and all these other subgroups. And they're able to wage war on the individual is what's been happening. So Europeans will not be able to even afford a living very soon. Uh, probably over half of their paycheck will go towards energy. Businesses won't exist anymore. I mean, if you've already seen the news, that I mean, l let me think about this. There's people in Poland waiting in line for coal. Okay, in Germany, they're 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 chopping wood to heat their homes this winter. Chopping wood. Think about that. Okay, wood has inflated to such a price in Germany. It's unaffordable. You, you literally have to go chop your own wood, as I'm mentioning. But imagine if you live in an apartment or something. You can't even, you can't even burn a hot you know, wood stove anywhere. Which, by the way, is all the more reason for you, if you do live in an apartment right now, you need to escape that apartment. Like, you do not need to be living in an apartment when there's a collapse like this. Because you look at Europe, as wealthy as Europe is, and Germany, by the way, is the wealthiest country in Europe. The wealthiest country in Europe has no energy. Think about that for a second. Of course they have energy. They could drill it. They could get the oil in the ground. They could dig for the coal. They have it all out there. They, they even have nuclear 
But now they're all of a sudden broke. The most powerful, wealthiest country in the world, I'm sorry, in Europe, is now broke because they have no energy. Think about that. The effects of these policies will inevitably destroy the living standards in Europe completely. But this has always been the plan for Europe. The European Union, through the World Economic Forum agenda, still has full intentions on eliminating the majority of their population, forcing their citizens into communes, and building their smart cities. That's still on the agenda plan. It's just going into more of accelerated fashion. Russia is essentially accelerating this design collapse of Europe. It almost makes you question whether Russia's invasion of Ukraine is all a part of an even larger agenda to de-industrialize the modern world. Regardless of that thought, the hard truth of the matter is whether Russia invaded Ukraine or not, Europe was already set to decline slowly through the acts of their own elites in control. This has been a plan in the Anglo-American empire circles for a very long time. Europe wasn't going to innovate or create anything great anymore. They were broken. I don't know if you know this, but yeah, I think in Europe, it's just a lot harder to start a business. Um, the taxes, the government overreach, everything about Europe is just really in decline. There isn't a lot of innovation happening in Europe. They are, there's great companies there that do innovate, do create great, great products, but there's not a lot of brand new concepts. You know, America is more that place. And that's why we have to preserve the innovation of America. Very, very important. I've talked about this too at length. So America is on the way to do the same fate, just so we're clear. Just taking a little more time due to their restrictions on authoritarianism through the document commonly referred to as the U.S. Constitution. So yes, this document that people want to rewrite and destroy or burn or whatever the hell people think, that document has stopped the authoritarianism from actually really clicking their boots here in America. That document, through the legal framework of that document, we live in a country where we get to be free, we get to innovate, we get to still create. Now, we may think we're really under an authoritarian rule here, which is, I guess you could say, semi-true, being the whole censorship and everything else, but not to the extent of a China or other nations around the world. I mean, China, they call it disappearing people. They would disappear you. These, these countries, you, you speak out against their power structure. There is no, you don't have any rights. The government gives you those rights. That's how it's written in other parts of the world. And in America, we have just this very unique situation that if you, if you destabilize any ingredients inside of this bucket of prosperity that we currently have, you can easily poison it to destroy it. And that is what's happening today with America's in this attempt of being destroyed. So we have to take into account what we as Americans should think and do to preserve these liberties, these freedoms, then the environment for innovation, for growth, for creating the world, the future. That's something that we all have to look at. Europe, on the other hand, is ripe for totalitarianism. State control by the European Union. That's why they had the Brexit movement. Brexit was Britain's exit out of the European Union. And that whole purpose was because Britain, England, was... They felt, the British people felt that the European Union had more power than their own British Parliament. And that there were certain trading rights, there were certain things and issues with immigration that were causing the British people to believe that the European Union had jurisdiction over England. And especially the English, by the way. But Europeans in general want to have their own individual rights. I would even argue to say that in England, the Magna Carta in history, they really were the first to establish these individual rights and inspire the rest of the world. And then it was England that established colonies in America along with the French. 
Of course, the Dutch in some places like the New Netherlands, which is New York, right? Well, it was, it was New York City was changed to New York when England uh, won the uh, I think the Seven Years' War uh, in the beginning of the 1700s. Um, so anyway, that's a lot of history, but there's a point to that. England is that part of Europe that questions authority from other places. They don't like the idea of outsourcing that authority. And the European Union really was a, a plan from Hitler in World War II. You see, Hitler didn't have intentions on just, you know, making Europe Germany. No, 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 no. He actually wrote the plans for the European Union. He knew that during some kind of peace negotiation that he was willing to uh, create by just brutally you know, hammering his way through, that that peace negotiation was going to establish the European Union and that there was going to be this, this lever of power that Germany was going to have in the European Union and that that was going to be how everything else was going to be settled across the continent. And to this day... Germany is the most powerful country in the European Union. How funny is that? Why is that? Because it was Hitler's plan all along to create the European Union. So in many ways, the European Union itself has fascist roots. Now, a lot of people never actually knew that Hitler planned the European Union, that he planned to have this kind of peace. It does make sense, though, when you think about it. How was he supposed to rule over all of Europe? Were they supposed to knight him as the empire, emperor of Europe? Was the Pope supposed to be involved in all of that? I mean, this isn't really, even though that's happened in the past, G Germanic, um, you know, uh, emperors have been, well, I would even say Eastern Roman Empire, like modern day Turkey. But that, that wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, Hitler wasn't looking for some kind of crown or to be king or something. Uh, he, he was looking to create this, this world order, this European Union. So uh, there's a lot to that, obviously, but what we do know for sure is that we are witnessing the collapse of Europe in real time. A modern industrial world now turned into a third world where they can't even have access to energy. They're having to cut fucking firewood in Germany just to power their homes. The energy bills in England right now are so high that businesses are completely shutting down. Imagine you pay... 400 bucks a month for your energy bill or something in some business that you run. And now you have to pay $4,000. I mean, they've more than 10 X in some cases, in some parts of England, energy has not, it's, it's, it's gone much higher than even feasibly possible. And this is, this is warfare. Okay. This is warfare. Now, again, though, yeah, sure. Russia is saying, yeah, you want to sanction me and, and go to war and all this stuff. Well, then I'm going to put you in a position where you're not going to be able to even function as your own country. That's Russia's prerogative. That's fine. It's the European country in particular, whether it's Italy, Europe, France, or England, or wherever. It's their fault. It's their leaders who should be held accountable for cutting off the energy supplies. When Germany can open new oil drills today. When Germany can build new power, nuclear power plants, they and France could do the same thing. Well, Germany's actually buying nuclear power from France, but there's all these countries that could do this on their own. In a couple weeks from now, there's going to be an election in Italy, and that election is based off of energy prices right now. And it's not about being at peace with Russia. Yes, temporary solution to this energy crisis would be to have peace or some kind of negotiation with Russia. And here's, here's the key. This is why we're witnessing the collapse of the European Union. Because the European Union is deciding against Russia. They are siding against Russia, saying we're going to sanction Russia. We're going to create all these trade imbalances with Russia. We're going to create all, this, you know, all these problems for Russia, as we can as the European Union. But the individual nations in Europe, the people especially, are saying, no, we don't really care about being at war with Russia. This does not serve our best interest. This doesn't matter to us. This isn't a major issue. 
hell, a fucking a lot of people are fr- Russians living in Europe. You know, I mean, it's it's a big mess of people. You know, and there is a general sense against Russia, obviously, because of the Soviet Union. So it's not like you know they haven't. Russia isn't perfect, and Russia has not left that uh, that place in people's minds of what they once were, being the Soviet Union, being the devastation, being the stories of the horrific nature of what the Soviet Union was like to even be there, to be Russian in the Soviet Union, okay? So there's a lot there. There's a lot to say there. And so the European Union, though, as a whole says, oh, we want to be against Russia, where the people of these European countries are saying, no, that doesn't matter to us. So what I see for coming in the future is a country like Italy, for example, but other nations who are maybe smaller or, or maybe they aren't have as big as, you know, leverage over in the European Union, but they're going to start leaving the EU just like England. England will actually leave the EU, finally. They'll Because they, there's this whole thing about Brexit, but it's not really happening to the extent that people thought it would happen. So I really believe that eventually it will it will happen. I believe that given this scenario with Russia, it'll be a more uh, easy situation to decide. It won't be called racist anymore because that doesn't matter. That's not, that's not going to work anymore, right? Even though the European Union is fascist and, and it's, it's a Nazi program to begin with, but let's put that aside for now. In the modern era, people think of the European Union as this one thing and it's all, oh, you can travel from country to country. It's really convenient. But all these countries are going to say, hey, look, we don't care what the European Union says. Let's just say Italy has a change of events, right? Let's just say Italy uh, puts this woman into power. I forgot her name, but she's some populist over there. Let's say that woman goes into power. I wouldn't be against that woman, the prime minister of Italy, saying to Vladimir Putin, saying, hey, look, let's negotiate a deal. Aside from the European Union, we're not going to just be lumped in with them. It's kind of like all your friends want to go to the club and you got homework to do or you got shit to do for the next day. You don't have to do what your friends are fucking doing. You know what I mean? You don't have, just because there's a consensus over, over all your friends, but you know the club is dangerous or there's some kind of something that you know that maybe they don't know. Maybe you can convince them to try to vote against going to the fucking club. But ultimately, they've already decided to go to the club. They don't care about what you have to say, right? There might be some people that are hesitant, just like other countries in Europe are hesitant about what's happening, like Czechoslovakia, for example, fucking right on the border there, Russia. There's all these countries that are hesitant about what to do next, okay? But just like your friends, they're doing it anyways. They're collectively going with it. So if Italy wants to just say, hey, I want to I wanna not do that. I want to get to a point where Italy says, I don't, I don't want to be at war with Russia. I, I'd rather make another deal. We're, we're looking at that potentially happening for Italy in the, in, in the next a couple months at most. So what, what, at what point do we kind of collectively understand that the energy crisis is brought on by the elites themselves? They're putting Europe into this crisis on purpose. Russia is, yeah, sure, they have a monopoly on energy over there in Europe. That's their fault. That's Europeans' fault for even trusting Russia and buying it from them. It's not Russia's fault that they're at war for their own reasons in Ukraine And all of a sudden, those other countries are now saying, well, we're going to sanction you. And then Russia says, we're going to sanction you by not giving you energy. That's not Russia's fault. That's these European leaders' fault, right? So in real time, we're watching this collapse, okay? And Europe, by the way, was even worse when it comes to COVID lockdowns. They have energy restrictions. Like I think in in Sweden, I believe, if you are caught having your thermostat at, at, at a certain level or whatever, um, you could actually serve time in prison. You could be fined. I believe it was upward. It was like thousands of dollars. You could be fined just for turning your thermostat one direction or another. I mean, that's authoritarianism, if you ask me. And that's that's Sweden's fault. They have perfect. They have access to all kinds of energy sources, but they choose to be at war with Russia. A. B. They choose to cut off their own energy supply from their own domestically sourced resources. That is insane to me. But again, all part of a plan. The living restrictions are also in a huge issue there. And now even food restrictions. Now they're banning cattle in the Netherlands. 
The Netherlands, which is the second largest producer of food in the world. Maybe you didn't even know that. But now they've had this, this, this limit on nitrogen because it's a greenhouse gas. You know how retarded that sounds to someone who actually knows what's going on? It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous that that's why you have protests like crazy in the Netherlands right now where they are spraying manure, okay, on government buildings in protest saying, look, this is how your food is grown, dumbass. This is how we have cattle. This is how we we are able to produce food for the world. And you're going to restrict these farmers who've been doing this for like hundreds of generations. I mean, however long the Netherlands has been around, they've been producing food for, for generations. So why would they be in that position? Why would their government, who's fucking retarded, put them in that position? That's what we have to be asking. These, these harder questions about who the fuck is in charge and why are they deciding these things? Why would they want to devastate a nation's economy? Why would they want to devastate the livelihood of their own people? And why would they want to cut people off from their own food supply? And in another podcast very soon, I'm going to talk about food. I'm going to talk about diet. I'm going to talk about the optimum diets. I'm going to talk about nutrition. But I'm also going to talk about this agenda to get people off meat, to get people to eat fake meat, and to get people to eat bugs and all the things. That'll be in another program. But look, we're, we're looking at a lot here. And this collapse in Europe is underway. But there are populist revolutions happening as well. There are positive things happening in Europe as well. So there's a lot to look forward to. And that's something that I am going to stay informed about and try to inform you guys as the podcast audience. I hope you guys enjoyed. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.